Imagine waking up on a peaceful morning. The kids, they haven't yet awoken. All is calm and quiet, and you, you peek out the window, and it's, it's just beautiful as the, the world is, is slowly stirring. Right? And as the, the first light of, of dawn peeks up over the horizon, you, you just rub your arms in the, the cool of the morning. And of course, you feel that familiar skin. You know well the, the contours and the rough spots. But then you, you feel it there on your arm. There's an unfamiliar rough patch there on by your, your elbow. And instantly, fear and anxiety well up from deep in your bowels because you know what this means. This is not just some dry spot of a Minnesota winter. No, even in the poor visibility of twilight, you know what it is. It's leprosy. Your mind races through what you learned in your youth about the, the legal demands of, of purification and, and cleansing. You, you know what is required of you. You start to think, is, is this going to result in an uncleanness that will set me aside for a week or two of quarantine? Or, or could this be the end of life as I know it? You see, because the law, it requires that lepers live in, in isolation outside the camp, outside the community of God's people. And they're to be set apart not only by their, their torn clothing, but by the muffled declaration, unclean, unclean. Unfortunately, it's the latter. The priest, he went through all of the required steps and the diagnosis, it's been confirmed. Your fears have come to fruition. It's only weeks later, but already the loneliness, the destitution, they're overwhelming. It's crushing. Years go by with no change. Despair and bitterness They've become close friends, but now they've started to, to morph along the way to apathy and mere existence. You're just a shell of a person. Your life has become so hopeless and meaningless. The refrain that goes through your head is that nothing will ever change. Now, you probably haven't had this exact physical experience before. But friends, are, are there elements of this story, of this experience that you can relate to in your spiritual life, in your spiritual experience? Maybe as you reflect back on your life, it hasn't been long since the Lord saved you. It was just three years ago, but, but you're still perplexed at how this coarse language uh, clings ever so closely like, it's been three years, Lord. Why do I still talk in this kind of a way? Or maybe, maybe that saving grace, it was first tasted not three years ago, but three decades ago. 
And yet still, in your your faith-filled efforts to grow in godliness and lay hold of the the means of grace that God has provided to you, as you by faith strive to be sanctified, you've just come to terms that that envy will never really go away. It will just simply be your cross to bear, and you will always look upon the the well-being, the blessings of others with an eagerness not of rejoicing with those who rejoice, but wishing that that was yours. And like a leper, you're slipping into hopelessness about being free from this soul sickness. Now, of course, you can check the box on the affirmation. You can listen to the talks and say, well, yes, of course, my sin was imputed onto Christ, and his righteousness is my righteousness. I've I've got that theological category. I know mentally that that is true. That is what Christians ought to profess, but that's really just some spiritual legal jargon. Sure, Christ, he can relate to you. He can relate to me. Because of his humanity and his divinity, he can be pleasing to our Father in heaven on our behalf, on your behalf, because of these two natures of Christ. But boy, does that still feel like you are swinging out of your theological weight class. Like that is some metaphysical stuff that I just don't even come close to grasping. So in this session, this talk, We're giving focus to that justifying work of Christ in expiation. Aaron mentioned it in our first talk this morning. Jesus, he has not merely justified us by satisfying the legal demands of God's holiness. It's not only that glorious exchange that Christ became sin and we became righteous. That's true, but that's not all that justification is about. He has removed our sin from us. And that's our topic for this session. So let's start with defining our terms. That's an ever-important task when we're wrestling through these kinds of categories. When we're talking about justification, we're, we're talking about that work of God whereby sinners are made righteous. Right, now, this is uh, the problem that Paul speaks to in, in Romans 3. I think we've heard mention of this. But the, the tension that is present, is how can it be that that a holy God can be in communion with an unholy people, with with a people as sinful as you and me? How can this work? How is it that we can be in his presence? How can we be redeemed to be part of that wonderful Trinitarian relationship of love? How is this even possible? How can it furthermore be possible without God going against his own righteousness? This is the, the argument, the, the questions, the wrestlings that Paul is working through in Romans 3. Because truly, we all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's a big problem. It's a big problem. But we also are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right? Now we've been hearing about this very theme. The, the God-man makes the way for us when God made him to be sin who knew no sin. It's because Jesus is God and man that he is the sole mediator between God and men. 
And yet one could raise the objection that, that this isn't just of God. That's not okay. That's not right. This should grate against our internal sense of what is moral and upright in, in this world. Right? How is it that, that this God-man takes the punishment and the wicked go free? How is it that, that, that we can go unpunished? This, this doesn't seem right. Like that, that seems unjust of God to crush his own beloved son and let us go free. How can this be? Are we saying, when we talk about the doctrine of justification, when we talk about that glorious exchange, is this uh, really just an easy believism? Is this just cheap grace? Hey, just, just pray the prayer, walk the aisle, sign the card. Those are all pretty old references. I don't, people don't do those kinds of things anymore, I don't think. Uh, you know, drop a text, send a tweet. I don't know what it'd be. Um, right? Like, is it, is it just that? You just have to do the, do the thing and, and then you can, can go free and be on your way. Well, no, of course not. It's neither easy nor cheap, but we neither bear the weight nor pay the penalty. Romans 3.25, God put Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a key term, propitiation. It is one we usually key in on when we're talking about this doctrine of, of justification. Jesus propitiates the wrath of God against sinners. What that term means is that, that Jesus satisfies, he removes God's holy justice against sin. In God's Righteousness and holiness, he can have nothing to do with sin. And in fact, his holiness requires that he moves with, with judgment and wrath against sin and sinners. Right? This is required of God. But what we're told in the hope of the gospel, in the doctrine of justification, what Paul speaks to in, in Romans 3 is that Jesus removes that wrath from us. He propitiates God's wrath. It is taken away from us so that the, the fury of God's wrath is not directed towards us any longer, but has been redirected. It's been moved aside. Jesus propitiating work in justifying us. It's, it's like this story I heard a number of years ago. I think I was probably still in seminary. It might have come from a, a seminary professor the story is this, that uh, we hear about these wildfires every year out west, and uh, I don't know actually if this story is true, but it highlights and illustrates well for us this propitiating work of, of Christ. So this wildfire, it's, it's raging, uh, as you've read the stories and seen the videos, right, just blazing inferno that moves rapidly and can jump across like the fire barriers that those parachuting firemen make, right, uh, so it's just raging blaze um, surging ahead, and it's headed straight towards a house. And inside, there's this family of four that they hadn't evacuated yet because the fire was supposed to be going another direction, and now it's, it's closing in on them, and they're scrambling to get out. But now they find themselves surrounded by the inferno, and, and there's nowhere to go. No choppers can get in, no trucks can blaze a path, there's no way of escape. The fire has completely surrounded their home. And so they, they run outside to see if maybe, just maybe, there's, there's some area where the fire hasn't encroached upon their property yet. But there's no way of rescue and there's no escape. And as they stand outside the heat from the flames, it is already uncomfortable. 
And that's when dad remembers. Just a few weeks ago, he had burned some brush out back. And so he thinks that's the only place we can go. And so he and the family run to the burn pile that is now just this cool ash heap. And when they arrive, he puts his two kids down, lays them down first on the, in, in, in the dirtiness of, of the ash heap. And then, then mom lays on top of the kids. And then finally dad lays on top of the whole family, trying as best as he is able with his own body, shielding his family from the flames. And as the fire bears down upon them, they are, they're delivered, they're saved. Right? Because they've, they've gone to the place where the, the fire has already scorched. They are able to, to run there and find deliverance. They all survive. Because they've, they've gone to the very place where the, the wrath of those flames has already met its fulfillment. Likewise, sinners flee to Christ in the face of God's burning wrath like they fled to the ash heap. Christ took the heat already and we find refuge there. This is what Christ's work in being put forward as a propitiation for us is like. That, that he bore the full measure of God's wrath against sin for us, and so we can flee to him as the only place of refuge from the blazing inferno of God's holiness. It is by this work that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Indeed, the, the demands of holiness are met. It is not easy believism. It's not that the wicked go free unpunished. Their punishment was distributed. It was meted out. It was poured out on Christ. So God is, in fact, just. He maintains his holiness and his justice because he does not merely let the wicked go unpunished. Their punishment was taken upon Christ. And by so doing, God is, in fact, also the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The demands of holiness are met. The punishment is, is paid. God is just, and sinners are justified in Christ. So when we're talking about justification, and when we share the gospel with our unbelieving children, when we share the gospel with our, our neighbors and colleagues, this, this is often what we're talking about when we speak of the work of Christ in saving sinners. This is usually where our focus goes, and, and rightly so. I mean, these are glorious realities. This is a, a glorious truth as we can embrace and wrap our minds around the holiness of God, and that that is not something that is fearful towards us, right? Perfect love casts out fear. That's not a reference to like fear about driving on icy roads. It's like fearing the wrath to come, fearing judgment. Well, perfect love that's been on display, love has reached its end goal. It's been perfected in the sending of the Son to suffer in our place. Right? So this is, this is worthy of so much thought and attention. It's right for us to give focus here to Christ's propitiating work in justifying sinners. But we're supposed to be talking about expiation, not propitiation. So what is this, right? So we're sitting this defining our, our terms. So that's, that's propitiation, the removal of wrath. In expiation, we're talking about how Christ has removed our sins from us. 
It's removed our sins from us, right? You hear that in that prefix, X, right? This is something that's coming away. It's no longer a part of us. He hasn't just paid the penalty for our sin. He's removed our sin entirely from us. So listen here to John Frame, theologian, commenting on this doctrine of of the expiation of Christ. He, He writes, by expiation, Jesus wiped our slate clean. We have nothing to fear from God. God forgives our sins fully and completely, taking them as far as the east is from the west. That's helpful to hear from John Frame, right? Brilliant mind, but where do we get this in the Bible? It doesn't matter what theologians say if it's not true to Scripture. So where do we see this in the Bible? And one particularly relevant passage is Hebrews 9. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, Let's look at at Hebrews chapter 9. I'll read a section of this for us. Hebrews chapter 9. I'll start in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Follow along with me. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared, just pause, he's contrasting, he's been highlighting the realities of the, the temple and the, the tabernacle before it and the, the significance of these things and now saying how Christ is the fulfillment of those things. So listen here, Hebrews 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled it, both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. 
for then he would, have to, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Christ Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that come judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now this book, book of Hebrews, it is an amazing book that is drawing richly on biblical theology and is looking to uh, how it is that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel. That all that God did in interacting with the nation of Israel uh, through the covenant mediated by Moses has come to fulfillment in Jesus. That everything that's going on there was just pointing forward. That that was the shadow and Christ has accomplished the substance. I think so often we can think like that's the more tangible thing, so that therefore is, is what is real and, and most substantive. Because like they could actually touch and feel and, and see these things. Right, the, the high priest, you could actually go into the most holy place. This space that was set apart as a, uh, as a unique location for God's presence on earth. So, oh, that must be the, the real thing. Like those people had something so much better because they could actually touch and feel and taste and smell and, and take in all that God was revealing to them. But actually, it's quite the opposite is what he's saying here in Hebrews 9. Those things were the shadow. The substance is what Christ has done in offering himself on the cross through the Spirit to, to God that he would propitiate sin and, and expiate sin. Jesus is the substance anticipated by all that was going on before. That's what the preacher of Hebrews is saying in this chapter. So chapter 9, it's got all those Old Testament sacrifices in view. So you can think back, all those animals that were, were slaughtered, right? all the blood that was shed. And even as I read that, you can, you can hear, right, just the emphasis, how many times the word blood is mentioned here. Everything, the preacher makes this point, everything was covered in blood. Everything gets, gets sprinkled. Everything gets, gets covered. So he's got all the Old Testament sacrifices in view, but he especially has in mind the high and holy day known as the Day of Atonement. And this is what he's commenting on and trying to help us understand that that was just a type that has been now fulfilled in Christ. And so we see at the beginning of the chapter, of chapter 9, talking about all these different components of the God-ordered, God-commanded worship of God. Right? So this isn't wrong. They're not wrong for offering these kinds of sacrifices. They're not wrong for doing these, all of these, these practices. So the chapter opens up talking about all these different parts. The, the tabernacle and the, the temple, the holy place, the most holy place, the altar, the ark, the covenant, the manna, the cherubim, all these things. And then verse 6 and 7, didn't read these. Preacher, he writes, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into that first section, into the holy place, performing the ritual duties. But, he makes the point, into the second, to the most holy place, only the high priest goes and he but once a year. Right? So, what is he talking about? Aaron mentioned earlier, Leviticus 16 is what he's reading. Right? He's got his Bible open there. Leviticus 16, and he's seeing the fulfillment of Christ to what was anticipated on that day. 
This is where the the Day of Atonement is described. And that day had a number of prescribed sacrifices, not just the two goats. There's a a number of things that are going on. And the preacher Hebrews draws attention to this, that the the high priest, he, he had to first make atonement for his own sin. He had to offer a bull in sacrifice because he himself was not holy enough to enter into God's presence to make atonement for all of the people and to make atonement for this place of sacrifice. He had to offer sacrifice first for himself. And so there's a number of sacrifices, but at the forefront on that day were the two goats that were set apart. Two goats for the sin offering. The first is set apart to make atonement for the holy place. This is Leviticus 16, 16. Right? It's not atoning for the sin of the people, but is atoning for the holy place. Because the holy place, the altar, and all of this has been tainted by the sin of the people throughout the whole year. Right? It's like just like as the blood is being caked on to all of that stuff, just imagine what that would have been like. Like, oh, just how stinky and tacky and gross. Right? So like, that's the point, right? This, the whole worship center of God, uh, there at the center of his people, is covered in sin. And so this first goat is sacrificed to make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. Their sins have gotten made a mess of all of it. And so the, the holy place itself needs to be atoned for. And so the priest, he sacrifices the goat and he sprinkles more blood. Sprinkles blood on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat and, and there on the altar. And so this sacrifice is highlighting for us how this goat, under the providence of God, propitiates God's wrath against sin. Right? So this goat is like the scorched burn pile. So Israel offers this goat through the high priest to say, this is the way that we will, in obedience and in faith in God, this is the way that we will evade God's wrath against sin. But the second goat, the second goat, the priest, he takes this one. And what does he do with it? Leviticus 16, 21 and 22. Aaron, the high priest, he shall lay both his hands on the head of the goat, still alive, and he confesses over this goat all of the sins of the people. Like, just enter into that experience, right? So this is like the high holy day. So imagine, you know, we're gonna celebrate Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday here in a few weeks, probably gather together with your family, maybe have a, like, good old ham, like, right, freedom, freedom food, and so in, instead of it just being about like family and of like nice hot cross buns at church and your coffee and like, okay, he is risen, he is risen in this high and, and joyful day. Instead of all that, imagine similar celebration on the Day of Atonement, but it's a little bit more somber, more like Good Friday. And there the people of God gather together around their representative, around the high priest. And it's not to celebrate the, the great uh, exodus, right? That's not what's going on here, but to confess their sin. And the high priest, laying his hands on the head of this live goat, confesses the sin of the people. All that we've given ourselves to, all of the, the envy, all of the coarse language, all of the lust, right? high priest confesses it. There in front of the nation, we are a wicked people, a sinful people. 
confesses over the goat the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. Right? There's a guy waiting. He's ready to go to lead the goat into the wilderness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. It's, it's sent away. This is the scapegoat. This is where we get that phrase, the, the scapegoat. So this is the doctrine of expiation on display in a more tactile way for us to understand what it is that Christ has done for us. It's a visible reminder to the nation that God makes their sin flee. This is the mercy of God towards a sinful people. Not only does he provide a way for his wrath to be propitiated, but he says, no, 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 I'm going to remove your sin. It is gone, right? It's, it's off to Azazel. Ask Jacob what that means, right? So, like, it is gone never to be seen again. No one is out, like, all right, there's, like, free lunch. I'm going to go find that goat. No, that, that goat is covered in the sins of the people. Hebrews 9, as we come back here, it doesn't make an explicit connection to these two goats, it doesn't say, right, so often, right, the, the, the vision that we get or the description we get of Jesus is that he is uh, like a lamb who's been slaughtered. Right? The, the, the emphasis is often on the, the propitiatory sacrifice. But that's not all that's going on here. Consider, again, here, Hebrews 9, verse 14. Given all those sacrifices, especially those goats on the Day of Atonement, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Right? So here you have this spotless goat, the spotless lamb. And this, through his sacrifice, he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So I think absolutely the preacher of Hebrews has in mind this category of expiation. He's not unaware that there are two goats. He's not just focusing on the one who was killed, but as well the one who was sent off into the wilderness. That, that through that act, by faith, the sins of the people were removed. And in Christ, through his own sacrifice, as he went outside the camp, he wasn't sacrificed within the camp of God's people. He's outside the city walls. So I think that's an intentional connection that God has ordained in the world. Right? That, that, that's how the crucifixion of Christ took place. That he was removed outside to be crucified because he was unclean as the sins of his people were laid upon his sacred head. So he's outside the camp to purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. And so Jesus, he does not only remove God's wrath from us, but purifies by removing sin. So indeed, like, again, what Aaron said, it's not just that we are tabula rasa, we are a clean slate, but we are that. It is more than that. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed on us, but we do have a clean slate. Christ has purified us from our sin, the willing sacrifice Christ made of himself accomplished what only was a shadow there on the Day of Atonement. Jesus has done the real thing and never again is a Day of Atonement needed because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. So indeed, Jesus did appear once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
So it's not just to deal with God's wrath towards sinners, it's to put away sin, to deal with it finally, completely, forever. Sin is gone. It flees from his people. The justifying work of Christ in expiating the sin of those who hope in him is so final and complete that when Christ comes, because he is risen, he is ascended at the Father's right hand, and he has promised that he will return. What did the preacher of Hebrews say he's going to do? Is it to come and to deal with our sin again? Because, what was the Latin phrase? Maranatha? Latin phrase, uh, the simul, I don't know Latin, simul pacare et justus or something, whatever, like that we are simultaneously justified and sinners, right? So like, yes, we, we still feel it intimately. We know it well. This is why we gather for worship every Sunday to renew the, the new covenant, to confess our sin and be encouraged in the hope of the gospel But is Jesus, when he comes back, is he going to have to deal with our sin again? Is there going to be anything left in his propitiating or expiating work that he's going to have to accomplish when he returns in glory to usher in the new heavens and new earth? No. 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 He doesn't have to deal with sin when he appears again, but he will save us who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we look and long for that day when the church is saved to sin no more. Because it it does plague us and we are bound by it still. But we don't have to be. We don't have to be. So, I mean, are we tracking here with, like, the implications of this doctrine of expiation? Again, not just kind of like theological lawyer speak or something, but this, this... this has bearing on you and me. This, this, this gets down into the trenches of our lives and what this means for us. Jesus, he has not only delivered you, Christian, he's not just delivered you from the wrath to come, but he's cleansed you. He's washed you. He's purified you. Your sin is removed. Consider this reality in light of the catechism question. Why was it necessary for Christ to die? Why was it necessary for Christ to die? The answer, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and the penalty of sin and bring us back to God. He died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. And I think propitiation speaks to Christ delivering us from the penalty of sin. I think that's kind of the, the emphasis that propitiation brings, that, that we no longer have that penalty looming over us, that debt is not waiting for the, the debtor, or not the debtors, the, the lender to come and collect payment, right? It, it's gone. The penalty is taken care of. And I think expiation speaks to Christ delivering us from the power of sin. And again, like the doctrine of expiation, I think we don't give enough thought to the reality that we are delivered from sin's power. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, it is removed from you. You don't have to give yourself to it anymore. You don't have to sin anymore. Yes, we are righteous and sinners, but we are, are, we are no longer bound to sin. We're not enslaved to it, right? The chains are off, and I stand up and walk. I don't remember the lyric from the song, but you know what I mean. 
Right? We, we don't have to give ourselves to sin anymore. You don't have to, again, give yourself to lust and pride and greed and gossip. You don't have to do those things if you are in Christ. And, and you absolutely don't have to make peace with your sin, resigning yourself to always struggle with it. No! No, don't ever come to terms like, oh, this is just going to be my cross to bear. This is going to be my sin struggle. This is my thorn in the flesh. Christianese excuses for making peace with your sin. No, Jesus did not suffer and die. He didn't offer himself through the Spirit by his very own blood that you might go on in sin, that you might say, oh, no, it's, it's okay. Like, I'll just kind of keep this sin right here. No, friends, it has been removed from you. You don't have to give yourself to it anymore. The, the power of sin has been broken because Jesus has canceled that sin. And so it is, it is gone. And so why would you go in search in the wilderness to look for it? Like why would you go search for the scapegoat? No, that's, that's, that's my sin. And likewise, Christ, he, he died and rose again so that you would be holy and blameless and above reproach. You would be without spot or blemish. Think of all of the passages that you can read about in the Bible, in the New Testament, where the scriptures are saying that's true of us. Indeed, this is why Jesus has saved us, in order that he might present us as his spotless bride before him, that we would be without blemish. This is the very objective of Christ's death and resurrection, that our sin would be gone. So listen to Puritan Thomas Watson talk this way and extrapolate on this a little bit more, speaking about Christ's death and our regard for sin. Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor from yesteryear, he writes, if a woman saw that sword... If a woman saw that sword which killed her husband, how hateful would the sight of it be to her? Do we count that sin light, which made Christ's soul exceeding sorrowful unto death? Can that be our joy, which made the Lord Jesus Christ a man of sorrow? Did he cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and shall not those sins be forsaken by us? which made Christ himself forsaken? Oh, let us look upon sin with indignation. Right, this is what the doctrine of expiation ought to do in our souls, that we would see sin for what it is and say, no, I don't want anything to do with this sin. I don't want to give myself to this again and again and again. And in fact, I know I don't have to because Christ died for that sin and he has removed it from me. So, Consider just in the inner workings of your own self as you wrestle with sin. But consider as well when you are sinned against. Because of the expiating work of Jesus on your behalf, you too can forgive your spouse. You too can forgive your brother. Because God in Christ has removed your sin, which is eternally heinous to him. If he's done that, oh, you can turn in forgiveness and, in a sense, expiate the sin of those who sin against you. So when your spouse, when your brother sins against you 
And he recognizes his sin. She recognizes her sin and confesses that sin and asks for your forgiveness. And you say those three powerful words, I forgive you. What are you saying? What does that mean when you say that? It means you don't keep record of wrong. You don't keep record of wrong. You don't harbor, I know you're going to do this again or you're going to sin against me in other ways, and then I'm going to stick you later. I'm going to bring this back up, get a little jab in when I sin against you and you try to confront me. No, you don't bring up the sin again. It's done. It's gone. That is a new covenant promise that you bring to bear on your marriage, in your relationships. And so Jeremiah 31 quoted at length in in Hebrews 8, speaks of this new covenant. And a key feature of that covenant is where God promises and says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's how God regards your sin. That the omniscient one says he can't remember it. So of course it doesn't mean he literally cannot remember, but that's how he intends to regard his people as though the sin has never happened it's forgotten so friends forget sin like god and don't let bitterness take root because of the doctrine of expiation and after all you were baptized weren't you you come and celebrate the lord's table don't you These ordinances these sacraments are intended as well to be reminders for us of this great work that God in Christ has done. If in baptism you were buried with Christ by baptism into death, then just the same, you were raised with Christ from the dead by the glory of the Father. Why? So that you might walk in the newness of life, not in your former way of life anymore. You were cleansed and purified in baptism, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal for a, a, to God for a good conscience. And so walk in a manner of Christ consistent with your death. You died to that sin. It is gone. You've been washed. So don't go back to wallow in the mire. You are free from sin stain. And as you come to the table to feast upon Christ, you come not as one who is perfect and righteous on your own, you don't come, you know, oh, I've evaluated myself, I've discerned my own sin, I've confessed it all, and so now I'm worthy to come. No, you come as one unworthy by faith and to say Christ is enough. And so free me, oh Jesus, from this sin, remove it from me and satisfy me more so with yourself. Satisfy me with your own flesh and your own blood, that sin would lose its lure. Think back on that experience of the person who was ostracized for their leprosy. The law made provision for such a person who was healed as possible. There were skin diseases that would run their course. But there were also those who were destined to a life of solitude without hope. Their leprosy would never be taken away. And so imagine, picture the man, put yourself in his shoes, who full of leprosy, 
approached Jesus and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. A man without any hope of being cleansed and restored, of being free from what plagued him that clung so closely in his very flesh. By faith, he looks to the one who can make clean. And with profound simplicity, Jesus replied, I will be clean. It's beautiful. And friends, that is the very thing that Jesus says to all who so hope in him. I will be clean. Your sin does not have the final word. It does not bind you, and you are not beholden to it. God does, he has not spared his own son. He hasn't. He's given his very own son freely that you may be free and enjoy all good things. So rest in the hope of Christ's expiating work. Let's close singing that simple refrain, what can wash away my sin? It's not in your songbook. Let's just sing it together as we close and move towards lunch. Indeed, Father, we rejoice at the great gift that you have given us in your very own son who willingly offered himself as a sacrifice for us, not only to remove your wrath from us, but to cleanse us and wash us by his blood, to remove our sin from us. God, would your spirit convict us of the things that we have made peace with, that sin for which Christ died, that it would not be named among us. And would you even help us as we transition to lunch to rejoice in the reality that this meal is a pointer, it's a pointer that you, because you did not withhold your own son, but freely gave him to us, that you will with him freely give us all things, all things, like smoked meat and good conversation over a meal. What a gift and what a gracious father you are. What great redemption we participate in, being folded into that relationship, being reconciled back to you by your son. It's in his name that we pray, amen.